This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Hey, I'm Jesse. Hi, this is Greg Margarita, narrator working with Viambic and LibriVox. And this is Trent Reynolds. I run The Violent World of Parker, which is a website devoted to the Parker novels by Richard Stark, also known as Donald Westlake. And, and a bunch of other Westlake books, too, now that you've gone through every, yep. every Stark book, right? Yeah, I, 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 uh, I've expanded to cover other Westlake books as well as uh, other crime fiction. Yeah, I, I think if it's a blog, you're going to start running out of material real quick unless you do that. And the good news is um, uh, everyone else will too, just like I did. I ran out of Stark maybe five years ago, I guess, until the, you know there's a book or two since then. Uh, and then I, I've, I, I haven't gone back to them that much, but they stick out quite well in my mind. I, I, love, I love Richard Stark and Parker, but uh, I'm not sure if I like... Parker and Richard Stark more than I like Westlake and, and all the other books he's done. Where are you sitting on that that score? Oh, the uh, the, the Parker books are my favorite, uh, but uh, I and and honestly, I, I don't really think I'm an expert on on all things Westlake because there's so much. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've read quite a few, but I mean, he published over a hundred novels, so there's still a ton left uh, to be explored. Uh, I, th- I think uh, of, of the ones I have read, the Starks tend to be my favorites, but he's written a lot of other great things as well. Yeah, The Axe, uh, The Axe, and um, there's another one in the 1980s or 90s that, that uh, was just The Hook. I love The Axe and I love The Hook. I just sort of, have you read those? I've read The Axe, I haven't read The Hook yet. The Hook, The Hook's about a, a it's, it might be autobiographical, it's about a, a writer who has to change his name. Uh, because his, his Amazon ranking keeps going down after every book, and they buy, keep buying less books. So he, he changes his name, and eventually he can't even get the publishers to respond because they all know who he is. So he hires a guy who's got writer's block to to uh, release his books under his name, and uh, uh, leads to murder. <laughs> it's, a, it's a book about crime writers who, who murder each other. <laughs> And done in the Westlake style, so it's, it's good stuff. Yeah, the uh, the axe is a is a favorite of mine, and the uh, the hot rock is another one I. Re- the axe is a really yeah. good one for our time, <laughs> or your time yeah. in the states, anyways, right? Yeah. No, the funny thing is, is uh, I lost my job after the the dot com bust. I'm on my second span of uh, of being killed by the economy. This time it was the real estate bust. Oh no! And I read the I read I read the acts back then, in that period, and I was very seriously thinking about revisiting it this time <laughs> it's around. It's vicarious, <laughs> vicarious. Uh, yep. Uh, joy or something. Satisfaction. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I want I wanted to let's start at the beginning. I got an email uh, from. Hard Case Crime Editor, Charles Ardai. I think that's how you pronounce his name. And um, it was back in March 2010, something like that. He was talking about the, the release of, of, um, of uh, this, I guess, is Westlake's final book, which was written in the 1960s, Memory. 
And I think it's a pretty good book. What do you guys think? I think it's a pretty good book, too. It's a significant departure from the Westlake you're used to, um, but I think that's a really good thing, and it, it shows you where his head was and, and why he went in the directions that he did go in. Um, but uh, it's, it's, it, to me, it's very experimental. I mean, I, as I listened to it, I, I realized that the number of dramatic situations of story structure that were uh, at play here were way more than the average story has in it. And I actually at some point, one point sat down and made a list and I came up with like 18 different, uh, you know, dramatic situations that are part of this one story. Um, and so uh, it's, it's an interesting experiment and it pays off in the way it should. I don't know if a casual reader will agree with me, um, but, you know, I think it had to do what it did and it went where it was always going to go and you weren't necessarily aware of it prior to that. The reviews are mixed on it. I, I know that uh, other people's reviews, uh, the people on Audible hate it. Uh, I guess they, they were expecting something more Westlake uh, modern. I don't know. And the people on Amazon seem to like it, generally. Um, it's, it's longer than most, most Westlake books I've read. But it's also, it's got this twofold structure. Uh, the first half, sort of, and the second half. Um, I think there's, I think it, it's one I might reread in five or six years. Just because I, I did get a lot out of it and I really enjoyed the journey. Um, but it's, it's not uh, a normal plot-driven story, is it? No. I was I was very uh, I was very surprised by the book in terms of of just how unlike most Westlake it is, and and I, I mean the book was rejected for that reason if I recall uh, what Mister Ardai said about it in a, a couple of articles I read, and but at the same time I thought it was excellent it uh, it ranks right up there with with my very favorite ones. There's as uh, as, as you were alluding to earlier, there's just so much that happens in in, in all kinds of different settings and places, uh, all wrapped around you know that that single thing where he can't remember what he did just a few days ago. That it was sort of ever everything in it was was almost as new for the reader or listener <laughs> as it as it was for for the guy, yeah. the narrator. Or just not the narrator, but the uh, the star. Let me let me uh, read the little mini description from I guess the back of the book, or at least the hard case crime website. It says the crime was over in a minute. The consequences lasted a lifetime. Hospitalized after a liaison with another man's wife ends in violence. Paul Cole has just one goal: to rebuild his shattered life. But with his memory damaged, the police hounding him, and no way even to get home, Paul's facing steep odds and a bleak fate if he fails. And it says the final never-before-published novel by three-time Edgar Award winner Donald Westlake is a noir masterpiece, a dark and painful portrait of a man's struggle against merciless forces that threaten to strip him, uh, strip away his very identity. Well, merciless forces is uh, a very oblique way of saying what? Uh, one missing piece of, of a man, I guess. Memory. Oh, yeah, but that 
that ends up being the entire man. Yeah. Um, it's the integral piece. It's the piece he looks for and can't can't find. It's a. Uh, it, it is. It, it's. I'm not sure how realistic it is. Uh, I I think we we tried this once before on the podcast and it didn't work out technically. But I was saying then um, that I I'm not sure that this is. Uh, you can have your brain damaged in the way that he had it damaged, uh, at least by a, a blow to the head without. You know, surgery because he has both long-term memory problems and short-term memory problems he has a kind of amnesia not complete and he also has difficulty retaining many memories uh, even for short periods of time um and that's you know there is Korsakoff syndrome that's the thing that was in the movie memento um which is apparently usually caused by excessive drinking which will cause all sorts of other problems as well but uh the problems he faces are, are, if not realistic, they're at least dealt with realistically, and it it does make for a very existential book, as I think someone someone has reviewed. Sure. What a, one thing that was was very interesting about about the uh, the book, and we we had started to touch on this yesterday. Uh, but he is he is a completely different person once that memory's gone. Uh at the beginning of the novel, he's pretty much a, a, a sleaze bag. I mean he's he's sleeping with another guy's wife, he doesn't care about her. Uh we find out later that he has a girlfriend back home. He apparently doesn't care about that either. Uh mm. so he, he so not only is he cheating uh he's cheating on someone and he's cheating with someone. Um and then once uh, once his memory is damaged, he becomes a really decent, you know, down to earth, regular kind of Joe. Yeah, he's a, he's this, sort of a blank yeah. slate. Yeah, I'm not sure he's super decent. He just seems very simple. He, he doesn't have any he doesn't have any master plan or a lot of deep goals. But I'm not sure. I I, I like that reading you're put. You're saying that I'm saying I didn't see that. He's he's just a guy. He's not like uh, pleasant. Did you find him uh, pleasant? Well, I, I think uh, people seem to like him. Um, not in New York, but in the, in the small handsome. town he ends up with. You know, but but not not just girls liking him, but you know his his foster family almost that he rents the room from. They're like, oh yeah, this this is a really nice guy. Uh, I guess I guess you're right. He isn't exactly Mister Perfect or anything. He does things like leave his job with no notice. Um, uh, but yeah, he 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 doesn't try and cheat anyone specifically. But I don't think I don't think there's any any scene where he you know he goes out of his way to make someone else's life easier. Uh, he seems to be you know just sort of trundling along trying to figure things out as best he can. And, and he has a lot of uh, problems put upon him by other other persons. And I, I think this is a book about human nature and about selfishness because everyone he meets, uh, ex- except for a very few of them, I would say, maybe even none of them, have a, 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 an overt plan uh, that doesn't involve his welfare. True, and even um, he has that plan. You know, he has this happening with himself, right? He has goals and desires that he doesn't consider other people's feelings very much about, 
And I'm not saying that, that he's evil for doing so, but uh, in the in what we know about his life before he he gets hit on the head, he doesn't seem like a terrible person. Yeah, he's cheating on a, on somebody's wife, but she's cheating with him, right? And the guy's upset, uh, but they're on the road. <laughs> you know, yeah, life's different yeah, when it's on the road or whatever. I, I thought the the point was more that you know what you find out about the original character is is that his ego and his id and his super ego are all you know they're set to certain values and the blow on the head doesn't change them to different values it flushes them mm. you know it, yeah. and so when he when he ends up in jeffers he basically has no ego he doesn't have enough information to even form one he's worried about remembering to go to work in the morning and um He's very know, modest, I guess. Yeah, that's the way to put it. Well, he said, appears I, very modest. Anyways, he struck other me as an, as an adolescent, you know, with an identity crisis, trying to figure out, you know, everyone comes to you when you're an adolescent and bugs you about what you're going to be and you have yeah. no idea. And, and that's basically the position he was in, that role confusion. He didn't know where to go. And one of the other things, I mean, whenever we review a book, one of the things I try to do if I have time is go back and read news stories that were written in the year prior to the release of the book or the mm-hmm. writing of the book, as it were. And in that era um, was when the certain cognitive psychotherapies were being introduced. And one of them was called flooding. And that was an intentional exposure to, you know, uncomfortable stuff, an immersion in it. Um, and that was considered the therapy. And I had this in the back of my mind when I was thinking about his drive to get back to New York. He was trying to flood himself and hope that he would be able to deal with all the uncomfortable stuff and it would just all come back. And I just, you know, I think a lot of times stuff that's in the news gets incorporated into the books of that era. And I just thought there might be a connection there. Yeah, I, I mean, they're, they're, when he does go to visit a doctor who I guess is more of a psychiatrist than anything else, at least in his behavior, he, he, he gives him sodium pentothal and explores his, his mind using uh, word association, I guess it is, and, and uh, does, it, maybe he doesn't do word association. Anyways, he, he asks him questions about what his true motives are uh, in forgetting things, and turns out that he doesn't have any. <laughs> right. Uh, he, he right, just, yeah. he's just, his just mind is damaged, his brain is damaged, and he can't remember things. Not that he, he's suppressing it. Uh, I, I, I think if uh, Westlake is making a point there, uh, other than, you know, suppression is probably bullshit, I, I think he's right, um, at least in, to a greater degree. Um, but uh, it's, it's just a, I, I thought that was another scene where he's, he's being used for someone else's agenda. Right. Yeah. He, he's he's he wants to find out how to, uh, how his life can be better by remembering what he had and getting back what he what he had. But he doesn't really have an agenda other than that. And everyone else has an agenda. It's it's either to make an impression on him or to explore him. I, my, my favorite was the priest when he goes to the priest and the priest becomes fascinated with the idea of him being a, a, you know, if he's a Catholic, then this means he, he can never, uh, you know, what are the philosophical implications of, of being 
unable to recall what your sins are. Yeah. I thought yeah. that was wonderful. Uh, because yeah, me it, too. the character is is absolutely fascinated, wants to help him in a very abstract way, but really what he wants is to think about these issues and say, uh I I I you know, I'm working with a guy who who is in this difficult uh what is it? Not it's not a moral state, it's a, a state of sin or grace which we can't understand uh using our normal rules of Catholicism. It's well, a, he'd, be a, he'd be a candidate for limbo. Yeah, because he, he he's commit he's commit if he if he is a Catholic and he's committed sins, he should do this. But we don't know what this. He has to confess them, and he can't confess them. So, um, it's it's a it's a thorny philosophical issue. But that's not what he wants to deal with, right? He's I don't care about that. I think he said that five or six times in the conversation. He's no, I just want to, you know, get some get some help here. And nobody, yeah. nobody can really help him. I thought the uh, the contrast between uh, the the people in New York City and and the people in what was the name of the small Jeff, town again? Jeffords. Jeff- Jeffords. Jeffords was uh, was great. In New York, nobody uh, had any interest in helping this guy out if it didn't serve some selfish purpose on their part. Uh, the closest he came was his former best friend, yeah. who 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 gave up pretty quickly. Yeah, yeah. but in in the small town in Jeffords, the the uh, the 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 dad in the yeah. family that he's staying with, uh, the landlord, the, and, the landlord. That that that's the other great scene in this book, I think. Yeah, and, and, it, and, and it doesn't and matter. Woman, the woman who uh, that he he dates for for a time that he, he sort of becomes obsessed with Edna, uh, you know she she seems like a genuinely decent human being who likes him for for what he is. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's like she's obviously not very bright since she doesn't seem to notice that he can't remember anything. Not, nobody uh, in that town seems to notice. No, they don't care. Uh, it doesn't matter. Yeah, maybe right, right. So yeah. this sort of a anti anti big city attitude uh, definitely be, was conveyed to me. I, yeah, I grew up uh, in the true. small town, so I'm sort of sometimes I get sympathetic to that sort of uh, that sort of anti city folk vibe. Yeah. That, uh, even though, of course, there are plenty of genuinely de- decent people in New York City, but not in this book. No, he. It's true, but even in even in the small town, uh, he does encounter people who have their own agenda, and you know the the police obviously. Um, right. And yes. the the uh, there's uh, I don't know clerks and other people who you know they they the, the, when he gets that job right I I I love how this book every getting a job is like you just walk down the street there's a sign you go in got the job right. Um, it's a it's a great book for uh, for that. Everything's also incredibly cheap, right? Because yeah, for, oh yeah, for everything and the bus ticket. We're, co- we're completely preoccupied with economic detail in this book. I know every to the penny how much money this guy has at any given moment. I mean, we go through counting, and I mean, you know, and the pile cost forty cents, and the and and all through the thing, I was making all these mental calculations and stuff. <laughs> um, but um, the the I think that the Jeffords and the New York, and I haven't actually 
you know, mapped this out, but it seems to me that there are archetypes in both that line up. So I, we were talking about this a little bit yesterday where I was saying that the cops and the loan shark in Jeffords are, can be mapped onto the theatrical agent and the acting teacher right. in New York. And, and so the similarities between the places, we get, we get a lot of the same archetypes. And what, what, what I think he's demonstrating is, you know, it doesn't matter what the surroundings are. He is not functional. Whether you put him in the little place, the big place, it doesn't matter. He's, he's surrounded by the same people to differing degrees. And he can't deal with any of them. Uh, well, I'm not sure if the, the girlfriends line up exactly. Um, if, no. if, if one is a, you know, one is in a more intense version of the other. I don't think you, whenever you try and map things out exactly, you're going to get, get it wrong unless it's, it's a bad novel usually. Right, but, right. But I wouldn't hook up Enid to Rita. No, I'd hook no. hook Enid up to the agent, whatever the hell her name was. The, the, the you, mean, you mean Edna up to the agent? Yeah, because he was sleeping with the agent too. Uh, yeah, well, he, I don't in, think he slept with anyone in this book except right at the beginning. No, no, no. In his original incarnation. Yeah. In, uh, is that right? Is that well, right? Well, I know that I, I, I seem to just think she was a, she was preying on his, on his, um, on uh, treating, she was treating him like a baby, right? I got yeah, the idea I, she, she took him on as a client so she could have him as a lover. I, th- I think that that was probably her intention, but I, I didn't get any, any idea that they had, had been an item uh, prior. Yeah, I if you recall she... the scene uh, when he first tells her about the problem, she gets all excited because uh, he's essentially a virgin again. Right. Yeah. She's like, somebody's going to have to teach you. So I, I, I took from that that they hadn't had a sexual relationship before, but that she you know, just was really excited that maybe she'd have a shot at it now. Um, <laughs> but it, it could go either way. Yeah, she, she never, seemed like someone who, who, wanted, who wanted to be a sophisticate, but really was just a, a drunk with power. Uh, yeah. As in, not she was drunk with power, but she was a drunk, and she had power. And in that situation, she... I mean, she they, they never really consummated anything. Um, and and she, she wanted... She, uh, I think she had hopes that he would be redeemable, right? But she's not a doctor, and she she just assumes she just didn't. She looked like uh, she was helping him, right? It looked like she was helping him, and that she was an ally, even though she was kind of a predator as well. But really, um, when it becomes clear that he's he's damaged, you know, he's damaged, and that means he's gone, right? And she doesn't. Yeah. She doesn't burn any bridges except to say that you know you can't help me. And I guess I was. The, I, I guess I was willing to accept that his original incarnation was as thoughtless towards people as and as cynical. In other words, so sleeping with the agent to get the jobs and whatever it was, um, you know, and that 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 could be. You know, you could say that the second incarnation of him, even though he never figured anything out, he spent all his time thinking about people. And so I thought that the previous incarnation spent no time thinking about other people. Hmm. Uh, yeah, he, uh, he, you could tell just in the very brief snippet that we get. At the, it's, 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 not, it's barely a paragraph, right? 
uh, yeah. before he gets hit on the head. And uh, he, he's, he, the main thing he comments on is that it's such a cliche to have the husband, you know, break break into them while they're in in the throes of passion, and uh, and and he's sort of smirking at that. He, I think he was smiled at the man, right? Because it was such a funny situation. Well, that's not what he, he's not, that's not how he is after. And right. that way, his personality is radically different. He was an actor before, an actor with talent, and now he is uh, something, yeah, something not a person as much as uh, as a, an animal with certain functions of a human. Yeah. I don't know. And the lull. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, yeah, I do think there was supposed to be a, a, a great juxtaposition between his original composition and his and the, the, the subsequent composition that he's in through most of the book. And so I just figured he was as much of a scumbag in before the accident as he was clueless afterwards. I, I think you could. I think you could definitely see that. Uh, not so much a scumbag. I, I don't think he was a scumbag. I think he's just an operator, right? Yeah. Um, because he just did what needed to be done, and he had friends, and he had a life. Uh, he was just a person. But what what. I think this book does is make clear that we are we think we think we have allies in this world but they're perhaps only temporary allies and that depends only on us being an ally to them because really he is he is pretty useless in the real world uh, or at least in the big city real world trying to do the job that he he had before he seemed to be okay in Jeffords Except for his his desire to get back what he lost, right? He functioned, right? Which he didn't know what that was anyway, right? But the ending, uh, I know, has bothered some people, and I think in their bothersome, they they have missed the point. Yes, it could go nowhere else. I didn't think it was going to go there. I didn't Neither think it did was going to go there, which is <laughs> <But> good. <laughs> in retrospect, which is it's always To be accurate. a good book, it, it could go nowhere else, yes. Right, right. Uh, I didn't think, I, I thought, for the longest time, I thought the square of, of shiny metal was going to be used to plant evidence on him, and when he returned to the town, we would see some other thing unfold. I figured the next half of the book, up into the next half of the book, I thought the next half of the book is going to be a standard uh, Westlake uh, nephew book. You know the nephew books. Yeah. Uh, Trent, you 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 must have read some some of Westlake's nephew books. Uh, I've heard the description before, but what what does that mean? Okay, well, the, Westlake has this situation. I'm not a criminal, but I have an uncle who is, and the uncle set me up in this bar somewhere, and uh, I just run the books for him. Uh, and then you know all hell breaks loose, and they're after me. They think I'm I've got some information that I don't, and I have to solve solve this before I get killed. And that's that's just a man on the run uh, sort of book set in the 1960s, usually uh, with a, a character very much like this character, you know, a New York operator living in the village or the Bronx or something like that. And he's he's a good guy, you know, handsome, and then. Uh, he, he forces out of his control 
put him into a situation where he, he, he can't trust people and has to go on the run. Um, so I thought that that's what we had here. But <laughs> that never, that, that second part never materialized because yep. uh, the, the police have their own agenda. I think the, the, the theme of the book is that people are selfish. Um, they don't, that's not a mean thing, that's just a fact. And how do we illustrate this? Well, let's look at a whole bunch of people. They all have their motivations. Um, I, I, the only one that I can say, you know, didn't have a super strong motivation that was obvious on the page was Edna. I think she was probably uh, put up to going to that bar with. Uh, <laughs> remember, she yeah, her, her the, sister. Yeah. yeah, somebody somebody said we got to fix her up. There's this new guy in town. Let's let's fix her up with him and she's a little no one, awkward no one, no one in the town will date her so uh let, let's yeah try she was she was plain uh, right she was plain and a little old for her you know situation or whatever it was um and you know the 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 thing that made that made our hero <laughs> paul cole talk to her was awkwardness right he he didn't want to leave the silence long too long yeah. because it felt, felt too awkward so he said something and then he said, would you like to dance? And he didn't really want to dance. He just didn't want to feel the awkwardness, I guess. And he wanted to fit in a little bit more. And, and that got the, the, that whole ball rolling. But when he gets to New York and he, he has these persistent thoughts about Edna, um, and then later on, you know, he says, I, I don't want to think about her. Why can't these thoughts go away? I think, oh, that, what does that mean? Does he love her? Uh, uh, and then he says, I do love her. He f- suddenly decides, right? And then we get the revelation at the end, uh, what's going to happen, uh, you know, a- after the page closes and the book moves on to the next scene that's never written. Uh, you say, no, yeah, this book is just about how people are selfish because she's out of the picture forever. And, and the one thing about it is, is, is the, the selfishness eventually is what leads to to him, you know, essentially being nowhere. I mean, if he would have just said, you know what, this is a pretty good girl. I got a pretty good living set up. I got a job. Eh, who cares about New York? Whatever. And that's, uh, and that's what the he, landlord was saying you were going to say, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. But he, he just becomes obsessed with, you know, I, I, I had something once I need it back. And it's, it's completely understandable. I think almost any, well, not that anybody would ever be in this exact situation, but, you know, certainly many the, analogous situations yeah the, yeah the the urge for for the glamorous life instead of instead of just being content with what you have um, is what eventually leads him to not it, i mean it, he doesn't have anything at all not he has no friends he doesn't even know where he is half the time um, where you know back in jeffords he was at least functional he 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 uh you know he <clears throat> He, he he managed to get dates. He managed to uh, to have somewhat of a social life. He had a, he had a good living situation. A few people that that cared about him at least a little bit, and and that all goes away just because there's something over the horizon that he thinks that he needs. That of course he doesn't. Right uh, now, the the question in my mind is: is I see this selfishness, you know, I see it in all the characters. Even you know, the say what what motive does the landlord have to to give him this speech? And and you know, what in the wife the wife the wife we think what motive does she have? Well, they do have motive. For the wife of the landlord 
he she she wants him there because she's the, he's the surrogate son, right? The replacement for the son that's away at university, and the landlord wants him there. Uh, I guess I can't remember his name. What, what's the family name? It starts with an M, I think. Yeah, whatever it is. Mumford or whatever it is, yeah. um, they they we'll, we'll go with we'll go with Mumford. Well, it's Mumford not Mumford, it but it's something like that. Um, uh, the Mumfords they have uh, motivation to keep him there, financial, uh, social, right? Whatever whatever explanation you can say, there's always there's never a reason for a non selfish act. All reasons for action in this book are selfish. Um, Edna's reasons for action are the least selfish that I can spot in the book. But whenever I make a, a claim, a sweeping claim like this is what would disprove this idea that everyone in the book is selfish. And I'm not sure I can see what would disprove it other than that speech that the, that the well, landlord I, gives. I think that speech is in there because ultimately the lesson that he has to learn is what are you going to do? You know what I mean? There's, I mean, there is no way out of this thing. It's, it's a what are you going to do kind of situation. And if you notice, um, everybody that put on a coat practically in this whole book, if you go back and listen to it again, they shrugged mm-hmm. into their coats. And every, <laughs> every female character at one point or another hugs herself. Mm. And I just kept seeing all these images that were, you know, they were all translating into, what are you going to do? Yeah. You know, it's, it's, and, and he was telegraphing to you what the ending was going to have to be. It was yeah. going to have to be him accepting, what are you going to do? You know, <laughs> I mean, it's. Yeah, it's a, he's, he's a guy who's sitting there saying, you know, I've lived a long life. I've studied a lot of books and I know my life could have been a little bit different, but. Could it would it would have it mattered greatly if I had done something else? Aren't you just you know? And of course, it falls upon deaf ears, right? Right. And he he can't he can't understand because he he has to live it. Um, and that uh, I guess that that's true of us too. We have to read to the end of the story to say, yeah, you know what? That that is the inevitable solution. Uh, and, and as we were discussing before the podcast started today, you know. Uh, life as narrative, right? If if life life is a narrative, and you want you want to have a narrative make sense, this is what uh, ties this book, I think, in my mind to to uh, Memento. Other than you know the fact that the main character has this <laughs> this inability to form memories, right? Right, and a uh, penchant to create notes. Only the character Memento t- tattoos them on himself. Right, but, right. But he yeah. did, he used notes as well in his pockets. I mean, it surprised me that he didn't use a Polaroid camera to to, to take pictures of the people's faces. But if this book had been published in 1963 and you know, sort of forgotten about, people would have been pointing to it and saying, "This is Memento is a is a uh, inspired by this book." Yeah, uh, obviously I mean, it wasn't, but it 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 could have been. Yeah, that was that was a really yeah. I, I thought the exact same thing with it's like yeah, it would have been. I mean, I probably would have been the guy writing a a, a web <laughs> post about this book is a complete this movie is a complete ripoff of memory. They didn't even pay for the rights, but yeah. no, it was, it was it was it was a different creative vision that just happened to be 
similar. Well, it's working the ideas through, right? Working and 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 they do work out differently. That this is, uh, despite being published by Hard Case Crime, which is is supposed to be about crime. This is not a crime book. It has crime in it, but I, I I'd be hard pressed to find a novel that didn't have any crime in it. Um, right, it's <laughs> a know, psychological or whatever. Yeah, it's a it, but but because the way Memento is structured, uh, the 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 incidents of the crime, I, uh, the way noir, I guess some people have described noir or hard boiled, is a lot of it has to be backstory. It's backstory being unfurled in the in the in the actual story, and you as you get that laid out for you, as you see it uncovered, then full understanding comes, and then you get that resignation. You say, "Yep, what are you going to do?" Right. Would you think of this book as as noir? I know the the back cover describes it that way, but uh, Mr. Ardai, God bless him, does have a weight of uh, <laughs> of exaggerating, uh, and I I don't think of it as noir at all. Um, it's, but I it's think you could, it is you could it is very dark. It. I think I think if you if you if you just look at the, I mean, really, it, it, the question is 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 Memento noir? I would think Memento is noir. And this is too. The only difference is in Memento, the actions are more extreme, but the motivations are not. What does, what does the main character do in Memento? He says, my life must have meaning. The only way for me to provide meaning is to take other people's lives, right? <laughs> Unjustified, right? Over and over, forever and ever, until I die or can't do it anymore. Um, and the reason I'm going to do that is because I need to have meaning. Meaning is more important to my life than other people's lives. It's, a sel- it's selfishness, right? My life is more important than other people's lives. That's, that's, that's what noir is. And, and in this book, that's demonstrated over and over again, right? I mean, the, 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 the one scene that might echo in my nightmares for, for years to come is the, the girl at the party in New York who thinks it's really funny that this guy has a memory problem, isn't it cute? And then insists that she's memorable, right? She runs out, yep. tries to throw a drink in his face, and he gets really upset by this, and then there's a, a fisticuffs, and, and as he's leaving the, shrugging on his jacket, leaving the party, um, she screams at him, what's my name? What's my name? What's my name? Well, she's not doing that because she has deep affection for humanity. It's because... She is totally uninterested in anything other than her her own existence and her selfishness. And, and going to what to what uh, Greg was talking about at the beginning of the discussion about how there are so many different you know settings for and situations for for drama in this. I kept expecting her to come back in some fashion or her boyfriend or something. Yeah, me too. But but the but because of the memory problems none of the situations have to resolve themselves like like they would in in a more standard in a more standard narrative i'll tell yeah. you one thing that 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 surprised me that did surprise me but i was surprised i i wasn't sure for most of the book right up until the end really not 100 percent sure that all of this wasn't him in the coma right um and the reason for that is it seemed so it seemed so Dreamy? Dream, dreamlike in that he, he just really, he, he couldn't connect to things. Things didn't, you know, uh, Jeffords. I, I don't know what state Jeffords was in. I think, I think she looked it up. 
I think the the manager looked it up uh, to see what state it was in, and yeah, and, and I don't think we ever learned that. I, I, I Nebraska. Got it, was it, <laughs> it must have it been was, Nebraska. It was in Nebraska. Was it really in Nebraska? I think so. Oh my God! Well, <laughs> I, I think he, I think he started out in Iowa and then and then went two stops east. So he may or may not have been out of Iowa at that point. Okay, Deer Deer Park or whatever. Yeah, the or Deerville was where the, yeah. the troop was. What, what, where did he end up uh, at the final when it was another one, like Mumford or something? It's, some, it's some, one stop. Yeah, that one, was one the, stop. One town away from where he needed to be, or it could have been in the other direction or whatever it was. Um, but but that, that crumpling up of the, of the notes at the end, that's like the final scene in Memento as well, right? Where he, he tears up the evidence of what he's you know, what he's done and just chalks it up to, you know, oh, yeah, I've done this a thousand times before, but if I throw this away and turn away in five minutes, I won't remember that, and my story can continue. Yeah, I, I, but I think by and large, the mechanics of this novel are not fully understood until you get to the end, and what else do you want to have, uh, you know, identify your novel as successful? Um, it, 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 once you get to the end, everything that happened prior to that falls into place. And all of the MacGuffins and the silver pieces of metal and the am I in a coma and all that sort of stuff, that, uh, we were inventing that ourselves. Yeah, I'm not, sure, I'm not sure there's any hint in the text itself that, that you know, he's in a coma or anything like that. And I'm, I'm positive that it – well, not – I'm darn positive. Not exactly positive. Pretty darn positive that – uh, Westlake didn't intend it to be as such, you know. Right, and I don't think he intended it to be noir either. I mean, to me, no, I think it just is. Uh, but that's like life is noir, hidden by fluffy clouds and puppies, right? <laughs> well, no, I think noir. You need a protagonist who views humanity as a herd of animals, and humanity does, in fact, in the plot, behave like a herd of animals. And then you need that protagonist to be really smart but burned out, pissed off, and numb. And this guy wasn't that smart. Yeah, it, it, it certainly doesn't play out like a noir, but it's set in a noir universe. It's just, yes. it's, a more, it's, a, it's a more, I don't know. I, I think you can over, overuse the term. Is it hard-boiled now? That's the question. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely not hard-boiled. No, no. I did. I might grant you noir, which is one of those things that... Uh, I think the police were relatively restrained myself. <laughs> yeah. Uh, in if you, fact... If you're ever, if you're ever on... Uh, are you, have you ever been on Rara Avis? Which yeah. Is a, uh, yeah. The discussion forum. Uh, I love the, the, the discussion they had on there. About constantly, like about twice a year, someone will get uh, what are these defini- what is the definition of war- noir conversations? Yeah. No. And then Otto Penzler, who was, of course, uh, he edits anthologies and was a good friend of Donald Westlake's, actually. And I believe ran uh, uh, the, the Mysterious Book Line, which is no longer in existence. But yeah, yeah, and a book line, yeah. Novels. yeah. Um, he owns uh, the Mysterious Bookshop. He wrote an essay saying, this is what noir is. And then, of course, as soon as he put... As soon as somebody linked to that essay, everyone's like, Otto Penzler doesn't know what noir is. This is what noir is. Otto Penzler knows a lot, but but can he nail it uh, down? And one of the things 
that he talks about in his essay is that noir is for losers and uh, the the characters in noirs always have to be losers and they and he says it, it can't have a happy ending it needs to end in you know may, maybe an ambivalent way like like this one did or or worse than that, but it absolutely can't have a happy ending. There are no sure sequels I- in noir. Is, is is one of the criteria? I think you know you can't have. It's 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 like almost tragedy, right? If you go to the classic definition, there's no Hamlet too, right? Everybody dies. Yeah, but there's another case right around the bend. Well, yeah, that's uh, but the, that would make it hard boiled. <laughs> okay, hard boiled. Okay. There's sequels, I think. And okay. noir, there's never. But doesn't the origin of noir come from the way Houston lit the Maltese Falcon? I mean, it's about lighting in the film, yeah. right? It's yeah. the darkness of the lighting. So, uh, Jim Thompson, Jim Thompson, but more importantly, James M. Cain, I think. And and, okay. and I would think that you know everything James Cain wrote that I've read has been noir. And some of it's much lighter noir. <laughs> you know, uh, Mildred Pierce is a much lighter noir than, uh, <laughs> I don't know. Um, okay, uh, you know, I can see that. Double Indemnity or, or uh, The Postman. Yeah. But, yeah, it's, it's, it, this isn't a book about noir. It's just set in a noir universe, I think. Or, no, it's just you set. Sell, you, could, you could sell me on that. I don't know if I'd call it noir, but set in a noir universe, I think, is, is a good way to put it. It, <laughs> okay. it, def, it definitely I, I, I like has that. Everything's black, except for the people who are lit up in the foreground. And he's alone. I mean, it's not, it's not, this scene is not in the book, right? They, they were on the bed. She was on the bed. He, the, the guy who busts in is wearing a, a, a cape like Batman, it says, right? Uh, he, he fluttered in, and, and the guy, they should both be naked. On the bed, he gets up off the bed, and then the chair is pointed at the a space around his head. Right, the four points of the the chair bottom are uh, pointed yeah. at the space around his head. That's not. This is not in the scene in the book, and yet this is also repeated. Remember when he right he at goes the party at the party, uh, somebody picks up a chair and he almost explodes. Right, he almost hey. explodes in fear and and and. Thanks. Something else, yeah. And and what's interesting there is that he does have a memory, obviously, right, of this incident, or at least partial access to to that memory uh, through some system. And I know if you if you've read anything about um, uh, blind blind sight, you know, mm-hmm. blind sight, uh, yeah. people can have access to visions a vision that they can't report seeing, right. So they can see things they can't report seeing, right? And and in the same way, he has obviously in that scene he has access to a memory of being hit on the head with, or about to be hit on the head with a a, a big chair, and it throws him over the edge. But he doesn't remember being hit. He doesn't even remember most of the time that uh, what caused his him to you know end up with no memory. And I, did you, I yeah, did, did you think? Or even care about whether it was psychosomatic or actually neurological. I mean, the doctors seemed to care about that. Yeah, the doctors seemed to care. I just automatically assumed it was neurological. There, that it that it wasn't him freaked out by the memory of the thing because he was too much of an egotist before that. He was yeah, it, it would have it would have greatly disappointed me if the, it had been written that way. I'm not sure that I'm not sure that suppressed memories can exist. 
right. um, everything I've read about repressed memories, uh, suppressed memories versus repressed memories. Um, I'll tell you, I don't, I don't remember high school very well, but I remember everything I did after class was over, right? Because that's where my content came from. Is yeah, uh, everything that happened in 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 prison. Uh, stays in prison <laughs> because it just wasn't interesting enough to to be memorable. But uh, I don't think I repressed uh, all all the traumas of my life that I am old enough to form memories of. I have uh, in the storage cabinet way in the back that I I just don't go and pick you know, pick through them. But they're there. I can go dig them up if I had to. Yeah. Um. I don't. I'm not sure that. I mean, because it's a novel and not a documentary. Uh. I. I. I thought that it was possible that he was repressing it because of the fictional nature of the book. But Westlake did make a good guess. I would say that, that if, if, if he made a choice there, it was definitely the right one. Yeah, I would yeah. have also been disappointed if it had turned out to be suppressed memory, uh, uh, intentionally suppressed. Yeah. It, it, there, wasn't the, enough, there wasn't enough reason for it. Yeah, well, the, it, they, it, they would have really had to... I mean, there would have had to have been some really horrible stuff that, that he was suppressing and his, his life wasn't that horrible. I mean, he's a good looking guy. He gets the Oedipus girls. He never he's, repressed his memories, yeah, you know, he's, he's, he's yeah. making money as an actor, which is, you yeah. know, something that tons of my friends dream of. And, and, and most of them don't have a prayer. Uh, you know, it, it, he had a, a pretty good life. Um, uh, and the only, the only thing that could have caused, I think, based on what we get in the book, that sort of suppression would be, you know, oh my God, everybody in the world is selfish, and I want to forget about that. But that, that's uh, that's just not big enough a hook to hang it on. Uh, but even so, even even the people who deny, you know, that the, everyone in the world is selfish, they still know it, and they they still realize it. They just don't want to think about it, right? And I I, I don't blame them, but uh, I don't think I don't think they I think they can deny it, but I don't think that means. Uh, they don't know about it. So uh, the the you know the congressperson caught having gay sex in a uh, public washroom or whatever he's doing, uh, denying that he's gay. Well, he knows he's gay in in the most important sense. He has these feelings, right? Whether he admits them or not, he's not repressing a memory. He's repressing a right. feeling or an action. Right. Right. Well, he's all trying to convince is- himself that. <laughs> You know, perhaps if I had a one bedroom apartment in the village that only cost 70 bucks a month, (laughs) I would never forget that. It was I think it was 75. But I I thought I thought, man, that is expensive compared to even even adjusted everything else. That's 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 pretty darn good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'd like to go back to the cover art for a second because I think I think it's absolutely terrific. It's by it's by Glenn Orbeck, who has done a number of covers for Hard Case Crime. It's terrific. And. He's one of my favorites. Uh, you're 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 right when you mentioned earlier that the, this scene, as depicted, doesn't exactly occur in the book. What I like about it is, is of course, the, the, the you know being just these characters with the black background is very vivid, right. of course. But but they're also disconnected. Yes. Yep. They're all they're all in a vacuum. Yeah. She she's standing like she's not involved. He's he's a victim. And the other guy's just angry, right? It, well, she's she's pulled a towel on, and she's leaning away from the action. But um, yeah, the, the the completely back background. We have no background detail whatsoever. Is a great 
symbol for yeah, the character. It is. And what he's trying to go through. And that's not a cheap, that's not cheap because normally, you know, uh, you look at book covers, the guys who don't skimp on book covers is hard case crime. I have bemoaned the crappiness of book covers for decades. They're improving very recently, but yeah. generally general fiction books have the worst covers ever. It's just, they get uh, some vague blurry image and throw it on there with giant font for the author and the title and, and that's the that's the book, and I'm supposed to buy it. Well, this is black for a reason. All the other hard case crime books, none of them look like this. Um, this one is working with the the text. Yeah. And uh, be, uh, you know, I, I guess they put. Uh, I know that I think I think Charles Arday mentioned that uh, to get to get one of the books in. Or it might not have been might not have been Charles Arday, but I know that there was. At least some books where they had to move the cleavage around a little bit, uh, cover some cleavage up for the Walmart Walmart distribution. Um, I, if they had depicted the scene from the uh, from the opening paragraph, uh, things would have looked a bit different. But it doesn't really matter because this is symbolic, I guess. Yeah, Probably went, going too much into this cover, really. Oh, no, well, no. one thing, one thing uh, I, I know Ardai did say was that every cover had to have a uh, attractive woman on it. But he published one book without an attractive woman on the cover, and uh, it was one of their worst-selling books, <laughs> and, which is too bad because I read it. And I don't remember the title off the which, top of my head. Would but, you remember but, it, but it if was, I? Would you remember it if I told it to you? Oh yeah. Because I'm up for a hard case book right now called Witness to Myself, and there is no woman on the cover. That, that is the one. <laughs> That's the only one that doesn't have a woman on the cover. It's, uh, it's Seymour Shubin, and it it's, it's actually has a lot of similarities to, to wit to, to memory. Oh. But, um, but I, I haven't gotten it yet. I, you know, I did the first chapter for them as an audition. I haven't heard back, so... They may think I suck, so I may not get it. But I had a feeling because I saw the cover and there was no woman. So thanks for connecting the dots there, Trent. <laughs> yes. So as far as uh, given that after that book didn't sell well enough, I'm pleased to hear they want to do an audio version. Obviously, they, they think highly of it, even though uh, it didn't sell all that well. Um, BBC Audiobooks has done all, the, only, all of the rest, as far as I, I'm aware. Um, only, uh, the, uh, as in the other no, ones no, that have been done. This novel that... This, the, there's only a couple of scenes in this novel where you could have put a, a chick on the cover. So the, I think they, I think yeah. you would have chosen that scene anyway because it, 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 it really does capture it very well. But they didn't, have, didn't have a lot of uh, choices for the artist to work with. What, what, what? This is sort of an out of out of left field question. But what did you think of the humor in this book? There's not a lot. It's not a it's not a funny book, which is Westlake's kind of trademark. Um, but I've never really been one to laugh at any of the jokes. I don't think there are any jokes in any of Westlake's books. Or if they are, they're very very you know they're coming out of the mouths of the characters, and they're that's not the focus. I think oh, the situations are funny, or the 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 descriptions are funny. Uh, this one does have a tiny bit of humor. I I do remember, but, um, but it wasn't. The- the girl that wants to throw the drink on him says, "What would you do if I'd throw this drink on you?" And yeah, says, it's it's sort of. I'd hit you. Yeah, yeah. I, there were some funny moments in it, but it, it but there were a lot of Chandler esque, amusing turns of phrase. I don't know if you remember the doctor had a permanent secret smile, 
And uh, he says desire is the appendix of of emotions at one point. And uh, the subway was subway was racing a deadline to the junkyard. Um, So, you know, I I mean, those that phraseology was definitely in there. Um, And that's that's quintessential Westlake. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah. I'm thinking this book is kind of unique in his. I've never read anything of his that's even close to it, I, other than it being, you know, it feels like a nephew setup. Um, it doesn't, and that's not even true. It's not, it's not a nephew book. I just thought it was. Um, I don't see, I'm not sure I would have identified Westlake if it had been written under a pseudonym. Um, yeah. And yet I, I, I think I know his style pretty well. I, I can tell you what I would have recognized maybe is the smoothness. Every scene with all this stuff not happening Right, just him going throughout his day, trying to get things organized, going from place to place. Um, everything was entirely interesting, even though it was technically boring. Right, not a hell of a lot happens. He just does this, and he goes there, and the next thing happens, he makes this little plan, and he writes the note, and then he counts his money, and and then you say, "Where's the action? Where's the interest?" It's just so cleanly written that you move on and you follow it, and you say, mm, "I wonder where it's going to happen." You don't even have time to even question that deeply. Right. If you get in the groove with it, it has a very slow build. And and the interesting thing is that usually in these books, there's a reveal. There's a denouement that ties everything up at the end. And this was one slow non-reveal. It, True. It, you know what I'm saying? It, 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 and, and when you get to the end, you the revelation that you get is that there is no revelation? Yeah, there's the there's two revelations, right? He, we get we get the explanation for the for the shiny disc piece of metal or yeah. square or whatever it is. And I, I was thinking about that disc a lot. I guess I guess a lot more than he was. <laughs> Just uh, I was thinking, well, why are they holding it like that? Yeah, um, and I was trying to figure I, out how it fit into some of the other characters and things that had happened. So I'm like, well, was it you know? Something he did at work, something he did, you know what I mean? And, I, I, and that's one of the things that actually played into my thinking that this was a coma, a coma book. Uh, I thought it was a mirror, right? And they say, who are you? You look into this shiny piece of a, who, have you ever seen this before? Well, what is he looking at, right? Yeah. What is he looking at? He's okay. looking at himself. I didn't it's, catch that at all. And, and uh, well, but it's not right, right? But why did he choose metal, not a, uh, a glass? Well, because if he had chosen a, a, a cup, then we wouldn't have had this thing praying in our mind, right? And that, that is why I think, you know, even though he wasn't ever planning it to be a coma book, um, he's sewing a little bit of, uh, I guess the description is it's somebody's got it as paranoia. I don't think, I, I don't think he's really paranoid. I think that that's, uh, this character is not paranoid. I think he's, He's um, the opposite. I'm not sure what is the opposite of paranoia. Whatever well, that is, he almost has that because you're he, not paranoid if everybody really is out to get you. Well, everyone is out to get him, but not him specifically. And he, exactly. he's worried that he will be taken advantage of. And right. That that is. I I actually thought, given you know, given uh, how this world operates, like how our world operates, and how it operated in Memento. Eh, he should be worried, right? In yeah. Memento, what we, we find out is is that, yeah, you can be played, and people can manipulate you for their own goals, and isn't it cute, 
right? That this guy doesn't have what it takes to be a, a regular person. Right. Um, he, he was, I mean, that's, that's the, that might have been the part of his mind, uh, or I guess you can have the cognition uh, without the, uh, and, the and uh, I don't know, instinct or whatever without having the memory. But that part of his mind was wise to keep the information suppressed as long as he did, I think. Well, I think in the back of his mind, he realized that a big part of his old identity had to do with social activity, which is both competitive and collaborative. And and it's it's identified by saying, you know, we're a group and it's us and them. And how are they different from us and that sort of thing. And the new character, the one he turned into, was not a member of any group. And so his identity crisis not only stretched, you know, it was an internal and external identity crisis. He had to give up on the groups that he used to belong to and also find an identity for the individual. Or am I reading too much no, into this? I, I, no, I, th- I think that's, that's exactly there. right. I, di- I didn't have anything to say because I thought you summed it up very well. The, Thanks. Uh, yeah, yeah, and, and he he does he he does find groups that he can almost belong to, but he's he's still a little bit separated from them. Um, near the end of the novel, when he takes the job with the moving company, yeah, uh, and. There's a couple of guys that say, hey, let's go to the bar after work. And he goes to the bar after work and he has fun. And then he realizes that they don't go to the bar every single night after work, but he really wants them to yeah. because he wants to, he wants to belong. And, right, and that is a place where he feels like he belongs to an extent. But, of course, they have other lives you know, outside of uh, go to work and then and go to the bar. They only go to the bar you know, maybe a couple of nights a week. Um, yeah, it I don't go on, it, it's the weekends, right? It's when he has to be alone. Most they don't go there. It's the day off, right? Yes, yes. So yeah, and he's trying to not be alone as much as possible. And when he needs them the most, they're not there. Once again, you've got this. You know, his identity is defined by social activity. One one of the books that I was reminded of. Uh, Actually, after after we had an abortive podcast yesterday, um, I made the joke at the beginning. Um, uh, this book made me want to clean my apartment. <laughs> the whole right. the whole sequence of him when he gets to New York and he has nothing to do except he thinks you know get used to uh, all the old memories and hopefully his memories will come back. What is he, he cleans the apartment all day long, right? And at his old job in Jeffords, he would spend all of his time. Uh, working all day long at physical activity, and that made him uh, tired enough so that he felt he had done something, his body felt he had done something, and therefore he'd done something, right? Because he didn't have this mental activity. But um, at the same time, I read this book, I guess in the springtime, called Shop Class as Soulcraft. Have you guys heard of this book? No. It's an interesting book. It It was available free on Audible, I think, for a time. I think. Uh, it's by Matthew Crawford. It's a it's about a guy who I think he's a philosophy prof- professor, and he uh, got in. He was into academia, and then he retired from academia to open a uh, motorcycle repair shop or something like that. And he just talked about the value of hands-on work, how it gives you a different kind of satisfaction than you can get from working, you know, with a pen and paper all day or. 
uh, working with you your know, mind, working with your mind only. Yeah, working yeah. with your body and working with your mind. And I think that this is absolutely true. I think people do get a sense of, uh, you know, your mind and bo- the mind-body connection is it, your mind is not entirely your brain. Part part of your mind is your body as well. And you're, I mean, uh, it's very strange because I I don't think of Westlake as an intellectual, but. I read a lot of his stuff, and I think he really gets it. This guy, he gets a lot of stuff. Uh, but just what he puts in, or more importantly, what he doesn't put in. And so this guy seems to, you know, the character, Paul Cole, he gets a satisfaction uh, by working hard with his body in a mindless way that is perfect for him, right? He doesn't have a mind, really. He doesn't have thoughts other than right. what, what he's written down on his little notes, and yeah. and yet you know we're not like that we've got we've got memories and we are capable of long term planning and he really isn't right he he's capable of writing down notes reading those notes and the long term stuff that i think is what makes us really different from animals of other kinds is is that is that ability to to do the long term planning and yet uh there's still a lot of empathy going on there i i f- i feel he is a person when he is acting uh least as a person in the book when he's reading when he's trying to perform as an actor he f- yeah. he seems as stupid as 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 he ever gets right he's, he seems like an idiot completely incapable of performing a very simple role you know, one line in, in really in what is a situation that I guess I guess he 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 even realizes that you know it's a what he's called the condemned man, right? Right. There's there's another part of the the thing that had me doubting whether this is a coma novel or not. He looks right. into the mirror and he's the condemned man. And he's a little bit shocked by the role title, right? But nobody there really cares about him. Um, and so when he he's given his line and he's got his makeup on and the everybody's sort of against him and he. And he fucks it up. That's that's it for his career, right? Yep. And yet, the, the, when he's planning that, when he's getting, you know, he's in the, he's on the train, or he's walking to the job, or whatever, he seems like a normal person. You know, when he's planning to get the job with a moving company, we think, oh, this is great. And then it's he's just recreating the life he had in Jeffords. Yeah, there are well, a number of scenes in, in the novel, and that and that's one of them that that just make you incredibly uncomfortable. It just, you know, he dials up the tension uh, in these in these sequences like that one. I mean, I'm not an actor. I I couldn't act my way out of a paper bag, but I could have done that. And right, I don't want to die. Yeah, and okay, you've got your mark. You hit it, and 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 off you go. And he just really, really takes these, you know, mundane situations and and just. And and it was almost sort of painful to to listen to some of this stuff. Like you're just like, oh, I want this to end. The, the scene at the party that we talked about earlier yeah. is another scene like that, and, and it just really. I mean, you feel for this guy so badly, uh, just because Westlake does such a great job of of dialing up the tension and 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 ratcheting you know ratcheting it up and nursing every little. Bit that you could get out of out of the scene yeah i don't i i think that um it was it was necessary for him to be an actor because acting 
is despite the the method acting teacher that we meet there it's sort of like a gestalt thing i mean when you see you know robert duvall or albert finney act you don't see them working you you just see them inhabiting the character and that's because they can let go when they do that and that's the one thing that our protagonist couldn't do he could not let go he, and so yeah, he had to hold on to those notes as, as closely as possible, right? Right. That's and the, another, all that he has is, is it's those little notes. Weird juxtaposition. The the fact that you know what it takes for him to be good at what he used to do is the mindlessness that he now has in spades, but can't apply to the problem. <laughs> Very true. It's true. Well, I. I I need to to head out pretty soon. Uh, yeah, me but, too. We'll end it right we there. Have, we, well, uh, I'd like. Can we touch briefly sure. on the uh, on the audiobook version? Sure, uh, sure. Because I I thought it was uh, extremely well done. I really uh, I, I don't remember who the narrator was, but I thought it was terrific. He uh, the the repetitive statements that the character thinks like it was all wrong. Everything is is wrong. Things like that that they kept repeating. He was he was really great at, at sort of delivering the rhythms. And yeah, Stephen and, Thorne. He's he's yeah. done he's done a few other. Uh, he did the Cutie, uh, another Westlake novel, which has a uh, it's a H uh, hard case crime book as well, and it's got a, uh, a girl on the cover who's not the Cutie, <laughs> even though she is quite cute. Uh, the Cutie, I think, is a it's a guy or a situation or something like that. Uh, but yeah, he's a, he's a good narrator and he doesn't have a lot of accents to do in here, but I think there, it was the priest Irish or something like that. And Oh man, the Jewish agent. And the, I mean that, that woman, he did her dead on. I mean, I've just known a bunch of people like that and that is the rhythm was perfect. The He's, he's, a, he's a great, you can tell he's one of those real actors who's yeah. an audiobook narrator rather than just a celebrity. You know, yeah. he's yeah. a, he's a, a talent and he's uh, thinking about it. Yeah. 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 It's, it's good stuff. Um, yeah, yeah it's, it's a, well, 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 do, well done production. I, I can't fault it yes, anywhere. Some, some, sometimes I, I, I listen to an audio book and it, it sounds like the, it, it's, the person's just grabbing a book and reading it aloud. This guy had definitely it probably read the book four or five times, made extensive <laughs> notes. And I mean, he, the preparation really, really showed it. Was, I thought it was uh, one of the best that I've heard. Uh, well, you're just starting to get into audiobooks, but the, he, he is a, he's a good narrator, but um, what, what stood out to me is that, you know, it didn't stand out at all. He just became Paul Cole and, and the, the, the the story unfolded, and that's that's yeah. uh, he didn't try and work the he didn't try and work the uh, the story for for his benefit. He worked the story for the story's benefit. Yeah, my number one goal is to be transparent. You you shouldn't hear me reading. Do you know what I mean? You should hear the story underneath it. So I think there's two ways you can approach this thing. You can approach it like um, it's a mosaic, and you're taking all of these colored tiles and you're putting them together and creating this something incredibly beautiful thing. My approach to it is I want to be a a piece of plate glass. I want you to see right through me to the story underneath. Yeah, I I call that like a straight narrator. That's what I call it. Not not that there's a bent narrator or a gay narrator. It's just 
Um, it, it, this uh, the audiobook tradition that I came from is it's just a guy reads a story and doesn't try to get in the way of the text or, or make himself outstanding. Now the thing is, is um, if the author is, is playing little tricks, you know, like we find out later on what an accent is, or he puts the description of how the person's talking into the text too much. Yeah, yeah. Um, then it it can be jarring, but uh, this is this is how all professional audiobooks should be done, I think. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, you know, straight I, narration I have... with whatever accent is is necessary to get the job done. Right, and there's I can do a bunch of different voices, and I experimented in the beginning with doing silly voices and stuff like that. And you sent me a link to something I forget who it was. Was it Neil Gaiman or? Somebody like that, and it was he was on NPR or something, and he mm-hmm. read uh, the same passage twice, and he did it once with voices and once without, and said there, you know, his point was there's really no difference there. You don't have to act like a circus monkey. <laughs> um, he's a, he's he's one of the exceptional narrators who's also uh, authors who's also a narrator of 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 note and talent, right? Yeah, he's, and he's that, got a nice voice, and he reads well, and that's what I want. That that article you sent me was at the point when I was trying to make that decision, and that that was what finally I said to myself: I'm not going to do voices. I mean, I'll get a little softer if it's a woman, but yeah, gonna... you don't you didn't notice that it was a guy talking when the when the girl was talking, right? Right. Not, not that there were a lot of girls talking, other than the agent, but uh, and I guess the the screaming woman on the steps. But uh, wonderful, wonderful book. Uh, a lot of people described it as bleak. Uh, I'm not sure it's bleak as much as it's um, uh, not to be taken daily. <laughs> yeah, they, it's hopeless. I mean, it's yes. in the in, in the literal sense of the word. There is no hope. Yes, not not in the pejorative sense. Not in right. the uh, any of the other senses. It's it's just literally hopeless. Yeah, yeah. No, nothing matters. Oh, oh so yeah, not non figuratively hopeless. <laughs> nothing. Nothing ultimately matters other than narrative maybe right um and that's what we what we we were talking about before the podcast started is is uh the importance of narrative as opposed to i I was saying there should be a department of of uh, narrative uh and physics you know you should combine those two departments because i think narrative plays a hell of a lot more role than a lot of the 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 departments uh, a, a lot of the a lot of the things we should be studying. And I'm not sure how that anyone could ever possibly do that. I just think that that'd be something worth investigating. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I, I can't imagine how you would start to start that other than, you know, picking up a book like the Bible and say in the beginning, <laughs> <laughs> well, there's, there's a narrative for you. It's, uh, yeah. is it uh, reflective? I don't know, but, uh, it, the, the important part is we need that. We need the narrative because we have these questions that don't get answered by by staring into the abyss. Right. To tell each other, what do you see down there? I see yep. nothing. I see the face of God. I see all that stuff. And Yeah, yeah. Trent, thanks for cluing me in that I'm up for the poorest selling book in hard case history. <laughs> uh, well, although- it... it, it- it deserves it deserves better than that. So uh, I, I hope that uh, I hope that the audiobook version moves because it well, really. I, uh, 
I'm not in it for the money, so uh, I guess it doesn't matter. Um, and I think Seymour Shubin's pretty good, so I'm willing to go for it. But I didn't know it was it held the the uh, singular position of being the only you know cover without a girl on the front. But um, yeah, I'm not sure if he said it was the worst selling. But what's it, what's the title again? I'm going to look up the cover because I, I I remember seeing it. Is it like a? It's called Witness to Myself, and it's a guy either letting himself out of or into a doorway. Or yeah, there it is. Yeah. Um, it's a great, and, great looking cover. Not enough girls on it. Yeah. It, the premise is the, the as a kid, 15 years ago, he had a sexual encounter with a girl that he may have killed, but he doesn't remember. And he's going back up to yeah, New England. It does sound like memory, doesn't it? Yeah. To try and figure out whether he did it or not. So it's, it's not a who done it. It's a, I did it. <laughs> that kind of thing. Yeah. So, um, so Jesse, Trent, thanks for everything. Thanks, and, guys. Uh, yep, um, it was a pleasure. Okay. Whoa, we got it done. This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com.